Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Something just wasn't right. So just from being, you know, around a wooded, remote environment like that all my life, I could tell that not only did the did the scene look abnormal and potentially very dangerous, but there wasn't a bird chirping, there wasn't animal movement, and there should have been. So something told me that a lot of stuff was probably dead or pushed out of that area, and that was kind of eerie. So we just kind of hovered, and here come two uh, cartel gunmen dressed in the camouflage with AK-47s, and then they've also got like their machetes. and. One guy is looking around very carefully. He's going and checking his plants. He's like fixing water lines to, that are irrigating these plants. He's doing a little bit of digging and kind of, uh, you know, taking care of his crop. Uh, while the other guy in the back is very situationally aware and kind of looking behind him, looking in front of him, looking at left and right, looking up the canyon, and just kind of at a tactical awareness, what we wow. would call, what we would do on our team on a tactical level. This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is TomRollandPodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on TomRollandPodcast.com, and the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram, or you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Tom Roland Podcast. John, welcome back, man. How are you? 
I'm great, brother. Good to see you again. I know. How you Good doing? to see you. I'm doing. I'm doing fantastic. I got your book here, your new book, Hidden War, Second Edition, and uh, this book is is awesome, man. It really is uh, eye opening because we had the first podcast, and if you hadn't heard the first podcast with John, it was incredibly interesting about you know John, your game warden, and you. Well, well, just tell us how you ended up fighting the drug cartels in uh, in mostly in California at first. Um, and, and that'll lead us to your your first book, and then this one. But we did a we did a previous podcast where we went through this first book. So I don't want to go through the first one too much. But uh, anyway, give us a little update on on uh, how this whole thing started and how how a game warden ends up uh, basically with a bunch of special operations warriors out there fighting the drug cartel. Yeah, Tom, it, it, it wasn't, a, you know, really in a game plan. It wasn't something we could have predicted because when I started my career, and I'm going to date myself a little bit, I started back in 1992, um, went to Napa Valley College up in the Napa wine country here in the West Coast from the Silicon Valley and, you know, hunted, hiked, cattle ranched, uh, all of these foothills, um, kind of in the, in the hub of uh, the Mediterranean belt of California. And, you know, when I, when I met a game warden, it was like, I want to do what you do. I want to go check guys that are, you know, taking over limits of fish. And, you know, you and I are both diehard anglers. So we know how important that is or undersized fish or gill netting, uh, you know, guys spotlighting deer at night, not tagging deer, poaching deer out of season, you know, all those hook and bullet cases and traditional game warden crimes that are very important to stop. Um, that's what I envisioned doing. And that's what I did, you know, about the first 10 to 15 years of my career and loved every second of it. Uh, what we didn't realize at the time was even when I started my career, finished the academy up at Napa Valley College in 92, got sent down to Southern California, Riverside County, the Inland Empire. And uh, we didn't talk a lot about this on the, on the first discussion we had, but I was doing all that traditional stuff that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, I was getting into some very aggressive, you know, felony gang members and stuff from the L.A. Basin coming over to Riverside County and spotlighting everything. If it crawled, it falled. If it flew, it died, you know, um, gillnet and fish. We saw some crazy traditional wildlife crimes. But at that time, and I wasn't really involved in this yet, the drug cartels out of Mexico had come across the border and infiltrated some of our national forests, like the Cleveland National Forest, uh, Tanaha Canyon, these areas that were, you know, my big national forest, it was in Riverside County. There's a surprising amount of public land in Southern California that people just don't realize being from out of the state. I mean, between LA, Orange County, San Diego County, Riverside, San Bernardino, you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres of national land. Mm -hmm. And these cartels were embedded deep in, in these national parks and they were growing, you know, massive plots of black market cannabis. I mean, we're talking 10, 15, even 20,000 plant farms. Wow. Um, they were bringing across the EPA banned carbofuran poison uh, to put on the plants to keep everything off of it, animals, people, whatever. And we had no idea at the time this was going on, at least on the game warden front. Forest Service was starting to do some of that work. I was starting to work some Forest Service LEOs, law enforcement officers down there and special agents that, you know, you make friends with and you bond with forever and still work with those guys even in, in retirement. But uh, this was going on then. And we just, it was so early in my career, game wardens really weren't on the radar to, to dealing with any of this problem. Um, it kind of went on the back burner, but that's when it started. But fast forward to early 2000s, and I've now transferred back up to the Silicon Valley. 
Um, I'm back in my hometown. I'm the game warden at home, which is really kind of a cool deal. You know, you get to work all those areas you used to recreate, mm-hmm. and now you're protecting them, getting behind locked gates like in Henry Coast State Park, working all the reservoirs for warm water fisheries, uh, doing that. And a good friend of mine that I grew up with that was a fisheries biologist, still is, and uh, was doing his master's thesis on red-legged frog and steelhead trout migrations and studying an area for about five years. And all of a sudden, one of the creeks he's studying is bone dry. And that was really a bad problem because it's bone dry in like April. So all those steelhead have just migrated. They've spawned, they've laid their eggs and all these fry are hatched out. And now they're just dead. The, The creek is dry. Those spawning beds are destroyed. Didn't know what was going on. Figured there was some sort of water diversion going on way up at the top of the headwaters in the canyon. And I've seen that a ton. You know, one thing game wardens do traditionally, and we still do, is we deal with what's called streambed alterations, legal and illegal. Like if someone wants to put in a road or a big uh, construction complex needs to put in a development, how are they going to, you know, very carefully protect the waterway that goes through that area? If they do divert it, they divert it cleanly. And they mitigate for any habitat loss that they're going to have to take if they got to take out riparian habitat, all that fishery cover we see underwater and, you know, the, the, the edging effect of different type of habitat mm-hmm. and, and, and flora and fauna for wildlife. Um, so I figured it was something like that. I figured there was a cattle rancher up top that was diverting water from the creek because uh, he needed more water for his cattle. Very sedate stuff I'd seen a hundred times before, right? So we drive up the mountain. I have an unarmed but very savvy outdoor civilian biologist that I've grown up with uh, being my bird dog. And we get out of the truck. We dive into this really remote canyon, absolutely beautiful and pristine. And we find where the water diversion is. And it's the black visqueen lined uh, plastic that's basically capturing all of the water in a in a headwater pool and then water lines coming out of it. Well, uh, I've never seen a diversion like that. That mm-hmm. did not compute for anything we would traditionally see on a stream bed alteration. So we did what we had to do. You know, we very tactically and carefully crept down the creek quietly and followed that water line. And that water hose, that one inch water hose went about a hundred yards. And now all of a sudden we have like marijuana plants on both sides of the creek growing on each bank. Um, As far as the eye could see, Uh, you know, there's, there's camouflage tarps, there's things are painted camouflage. Everything's like concealed from the air for aerial surveillance or somebody walking into it. Well, that's not your typical water diversion, man. That made no sense. And as we were kind of observing carefully and being quiet, because, you know, we just had that kind of that spider sense, you know, the hair standing up on the back of your neck, something just wasn't right. So just from being, you know, around a wooded remote environment like that all my life, I could tell that not only did the, did the scene look abnormal and potentially very dangerous, but there wasn't a bird chirping, there wasn't animal movement, and there should have been. Mm. So something told me that a lot of stuff was probably dead or pushed out of that area, and that was kind of eerie. So we just kind of hovered, and here come two uh, cartel gunmen dressed in the camouflage with AK-47s, and then they've also got like their machetes. And one guy is looking around very carefully, He's going and checking his plants. He's like fixing water lines to, that are irrigating these plants. He's doing a little bit of digging and kind of, uh, you know, taking care of his crop. Uh, while the other guy in the back is very situationally aware and kind of looking behind him, looking in front of him, looking at left and right, looking up the canyon and just kind of at a tactical awareness, what wow. we would call what we would do on our team on a tactical level. And that was freaky. 
you know, who are these guys? One, they don't look like they belong. They look more like a, a militia from South America or something, you know, mm-hmm. it was crazy. And that was my first visual eye to eye contact with an embedded domestic, you know, eco-terrorist threat, the drug cartels out of Mexico. Um, we fortunately did not have contact with them. They did not see us. We stayed hidden because I had an AR-15. My partner was an unarmed civilian. I had no radio contact. There was no cell coverage down in this canyon. And this was going to be a heck of a heck of a story to explain to my bosses if all of a sudden we're in a gunfight with, you know, foreign invaders for basically looking for a stream diversion. Right. You know, and I've got an unarmed civilian with me, which, you know, we we had we we run with those folks all the time. They're part of our thin green line. And, you know, like you're part of the thin green line being out there as an advocate for conservation. And if you're not going to, you see a violation, you can call it in, uh, you know, you can be part of the solution and be a force multiplier for the very few game wardens that are on the ground, you know, and that's who, that's who this gentleman was. He was that lifelong diehard conservationist. And now I'm responsible and feeling like, man, I can't get this guy hurt. We need to get out of here and hopefully not have any contact with these guys. And fortunately we were able to hide. They didn't see us. They did their thing. They got about 15, 20 yards from us. And then they turned around as we were hiding in the Creek bank and they just worked their way out of the area. And as soon as the coast was clear, we hightailed it out of there quietly, watching our six o'clock, very carefully, very quietly, hiking 500 vertical, you know, on a nice steep incline to get back to the truck and then process what we just saw. And uh, long story, just a little longer, I knew now we were into something that was way out of my bandwidth, right? I had to get some drug cops, talk to the sheriffs, talk to the, uh, the drug task force, whatever the case may be. And so I started to work and get to know other LEOs, law enforcement officers in my particular area, Silicon Valley, that I just hadn't worked with before. And we brought a task force in. We kind of guided them in there about three weeks later when we could get it all worked out safely. And we raided that site and uh, we chased around those same two bad guys and did not catch them. Uh, again, we it wasn't our mission. It wasn't our tactics. It was just we were going along to help them get in and out of the area, kind of being you know subject matter on it, knowing it. And uh, we eradicated a bunch of plants. I think it was 7,000 marijuana plants. Had no idea about the banned poisons because they were definitely all over the plants. We just weren't aware of this stuff yet. And then um, it was time to leave. So they called in a Pavehawk, you know, Black Hawk helicopter from Moffett Field from the counter drug task force from the military unit, the 129th, uh, to come in and hoist us out. So next thing I know, we're hoisting into Blackhawks that day and, you know, never done that before. <laughs> that was that was a, you know, e-ticket ride. So that was cool. Um, but then I realized there was so much more going on to the threat to wildlife and the threat to waterways within California. And I would later learn it was all over the country than the traditional hook and bullet stuff the game wardens were doing. And when we saw that, we, uh, we developed some friendships with the sheriff's office that had a really good marijuana eradication team here in the Silicon Valley. And all those guys on that team were snipers. They were you know, tactical professionals on their SWAT team. Uh, we integrated really well. They really liked working with uh, me and my game wardens because, you know, we're just quiet in the woods. We live in the woods, right. you know, and everyone's in shape to hike, you know, those crazy, hard, arduous areas in hot conditions. And they started kind of, you know, picking us by choice. And we were our own little team after that one mission. Um, and then we had that first gunfight a year later on, in, on Sierra Azul up above the affluent city of Los Gatos here in Silicon Valley. And my warden partner was shot through both legs by that AK-47 hit, which darn near killed him. And by the good graces, he survived. But that was with those same sheriff's deputies that we would become lifelong brothers with from that incident. And seeing more and more of these environmental crimes, 
And while my agency wasn't ready to say, okay, we're going to dedicate game wardens to this illegal cannabis trade, especially with organized crime groups, um, they were all for me working with other agencies and starting to get the intel and the knowledge we would later need to build our own team. Mm. And, you know, 11 to 12 years later in 2013, as Hidden War, both editions one and two go into, that book really chronicles building that team, uh, the leadership role I was put in, uh, getting to work with amazing people, getting to uh, change a scope of what game wardens do completely different. Because uh, we no longer did routine patrol. We would jump back and help patrol officers occasionally. But now we were working without district boundaries. We were working for the chief himself under the special operations umbrella. We could go anywhere in the state. We could work with anybody. We did a lot of outreach and education. That was my job as a team leader, besides doing missions and coordinating training with the guys, was to kind of do like what we're doing today, tell the story, uh, present to groups that need to know what's going on there. And, uh, you know, six gunfights later and adding a bunch of advanced canines to try to mitigate and eliminate uh, the threat or reduce the number of officer-involved shootings, um, we realized we had a major domestic threat, probably the most dangerous game wardens have faced. And on top of that, one of the most, if not the most environmentally damaging poaching elements out there because of these banned poisons, because of the amount of water they steal, because of the toxic, you know, super fun site they leave in these gross sites that threatened endangered fish like the steelhead trout that you're very familiar with being, being a trout angler like myself, yeah. uh, you know, we have hardly any of those fish left on the West Coast. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And one gross site, Tom, that these guys are involved in with two tablespoons of this carbofuran poison could wipe out a two to five mile creek. And that, that fishery's dead for years. Man. Even if you raid that grow, restore the damage, clean the water up, you, you might not see steelhead trout, if ever, for two or three years. And I'll go back to that first case with my biologist buddy on that very first grow in 2004 that we found. It took three years before we saw steelhead and a trout fishery back in that little creek tributary to Coyote, Coyote Lake down there. Uh, and that was, that was not that big of a grow. And, mm. you know, we, it took us a year to go in and reclimate it and figure out that you had to clean this stuff up. You had to restore the banks. You had to take out the sedimentation, try to eliminate the poisons. Uh, and nobody was doing that. And so when we formed up the MET team full time in 2013 through the pilot program, we made it an objective, a mission, a, a actual a mandate that one of the three things we would do besides actively hunt and try to arrest and take these guys out of circulation and then eradicate these poison plants for going to the black market with all this crap on them that kids are smoking and experimenting with. Uh, you know, recreational medicinal users are, are using all over the Midwest and East Coast where the stuff's exported to. Um, we had to clean the site up and, you know, we had to do the ugly, dirty garbage collection job uh, of taking the trash out and taking the waterways back to their original condition and taking out water lines and diversions and uh, eliminate those poisons. And now we're on a track of doing that statewide and actually in other states now as a priority for game wardens. And it's just been the evolution of the profession that um, 
I'm not going to say we started it, but we were on the ground. We were really on the ground at the early stages, suddenly trying to legitimize that, hey, it's not a traditional job that most every game warden is going to want to do. It's definitely got a danger element. It's definitely, you know, a tough one to do physically and mentally. Um, it's exhausting, actually, but I don't think there's any better reward I've had. And I feel very blessed to have made that the second half of my career. Um, and then to expose the problem now in retirement in phase two with, with you today uh, to really talk about that and the other things the cartels are doing that I'm sure we can get into. Sure. Um, wow. So many questions uh, when, you, when you explain it that way. Um, first question, when, when you were a game warden in California, you're operating as a state game warden or a federal game warden? Yeah, state of California game warden, but like all state game wardens, and you know, certain states have different, different authority levels for their game wardens. In California, we're full sworn peace officers. We go to the same police academy level of training. We have to go through the same. It's called Peace Officer Standard and Training Post Program in California. So everything, the California Highway Patrol, the uh, sheriffs, city police, mm -hmm. you name it, we are trained and certified to do all that. Mm -hmm. And then we go off and do about seven or eight weeks of just wildlife crime specific stuff in our academy that make the academy even longer than most police academies. Oh. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're out there doing everything. So we're making, you know, I've had reckless drivers, drunk drivers. I've uh, had sexual assaults in progress on a backcountry trail that I've stopped, drug deals going down, body dumps. I mean, we've seen it all. Mm. And game wardens will have to deal with that. Um, largely because when you get in these remote outdoor areas where a sheriff might not be able to patrol because he or she are hitting call after call after call, you know, kind of in the rural communities and or the cities, same thing with city cops. So we're doing all of that, but then we're doing the wildlife stuff and that's our forte and that's what we're trying to focus on because it just doesn't get enough attention. Um, with that, since we're state certified to do all those jobs, we are also federally deputized with an identification certification from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So if a federal Fish and Wildlife Service agent is, uh, is you know, dealing with a poaching case in, say, Kansas, and that guy's coming from California, that poacher, or he's bringing animals back illegally, once it crosses state lines, it's called the Lacey Act and it becomes a felony. Okay. And we can intervene and we can actually start investigating that federally, even though it didn't originate in our state. So we're a force multiplier for the federal agents because they're even thinner than we are in numbers, just like all of our conservationists out there, yourself included at the top of that list, are force multipliers for the average game warden on the ground in any state turning in bad guys, you know, looking for poachers and, and using that 1-800 turn in a poacher line. That's, uh, that's, that's very interesting information. One of the things that you were just talking about, which made me, made me go to uh, page 220 of your, of your book, was the number of game wardens in the field for the United States in February 2008. Oh, yeah, that's eye-opening, right? In 2017, what was the most eye-opening is I went straight to Wyoming, one of the biggest states that we have, and in 2008, there were 59 agents. In 2017, there were 80. In the entire state of Wyoming, you know, you go to another state, you know, a, a, a sportsman's state, Tennessee, had 181, bumped up to 235. You got Montana um, that actually went down from 101 to 100. Uh, Florida, 722 to 853. Um, you know, but, but surprisingly, North Dakota, 35 to 70. Um, but it's just so, 
such a small, small number of total wardens out there. I mean, some states, you know, Florida has a few more. Why, why do you think it is that Florida has so many more than, than, I mean, they are. They're like seven times more than most of these other states, at least seven times more. Texas has 494 to 470. But uh, why do you think it is yeah. that, that Florida has so many? Yeah, Florida, um, well, to, to your first point, we don't say we're the thin green line for nothing. We're, we're paper thin. <laughs> yeah. I like to say we're anorexic thin. Yeah. None for me, thanks. I'm stuffed. I'm not eating another bite. I mean, and what we've seen is in that demographic, um, and that was from the first book from edition one. Mm -hmm. And we looked at those numbers, and those numbers haven't changed that much. So we left that part in the appendices in the second, you know, the second edition, because we wanted all the original content, the story of the missions, how the team developed, what the national trends are the dog stories with canine Phoebe and all that, but we just updated everything to show what's changed and what's not changed. And look at it this way. Think of the population density, the influx of everybody coming into the country now since COVID especially. And book one came out right before COVID dropped, mm -hmm. right after operationally retired in 2019. And here we go. And the number of game wardens has either stayed the same in most states, maybe gone down a little bit, or if they've grown, they've grown less than 5, 10, 20% if you're having a really progressive funding in a particular state. But look at the population and how much we've blown up. And look how many more people have recreated and or committed wildlife mm -hmm. crimes mm -hmm. in the backcountry on waterways. And I'm going to go down to, you know, and this is kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time. And uh, I don't know that you and I have talked about this a lot, but something that you and I have always shared since I've gotten to know you is how therapeutic the outdoors are for mental health. Yeah. You know, when you're on your boat, filming a show, not filming a show with your family, casting that line, man, getting that first hookup or just having that conversation where, you know, there's a little more peace. There's a little, a little more sensibility to the world when you're mm -hmm. on the water oh, for sure. and you're not around all of this social media hit on all this, you know, blood and guts and crime and violence and all this nastiness. It's the same way, you know, when you're back hunting and in the back country. And one thing we noticed through the COVID is the depression and suicide rate was skyrocketing. Alcohol and drug abuse were skyrocketing. And then people finally started to get outside and not just us that live in the outdoors and thrive on it and need to be there all the time. But we had a lot of people that weren't traditional hunters. They weren't anglers. Maybe they hiked, uh, you know, a paved hiking trail in, yeah. in a, in a city park, but now they were going out to waterways and getting fishing licenses just to get out, right. just to breathe, you know, and also getting hunting licenses and, and, and buying their first weapon when they were traditionally before that, you know, anti, anti-firearm mm -hmm. thinking, Hey, I might have to survive. Right. I might have to subsist and learn to hunt to feed my family. Cause I live in a quasi rural area, or I might have to leave the city cause it's, you know, it's, it's burning down hopefully not literally, but it's getting that scary. Um, so we had a flood of people in the outdoors, mm -hmm. which I think was great. Uh, you know, my co-host that you know, uh, Wayne Saunders for our Warden's Watch and Thin Green Line podcast. When we started Thin Green Line podcast about a month or two into lockdowns, we were really getting into that demographic of, you know, people starting to flood the outdoors. What is that going to mean? It's going to be great for mental health, but you're also going to have a lot more impacts right. because where the good goes, some of the bad goes. So, cut gates, people in wilderness areas. I was seeing that up in, you know, I'm in the most remote part of Montana now, living in Lincoln County up on the Canadian border. And I'm out through lockdowns, 
going into my, you know, spring bear spots and going into the high lakes when I can first access them and finding a ton of poaching crimes, mm -hmm. stuff going on. I'm having to call my local game wardens on people in areas they shouldn't be in vehicles because they've cut locks and cut gates and they're just going for it. And they know there's no law enforcement presence out there because everybody was distracted. Everybody was diverted game wardens and, you know, forest rangers, especially, uh, as well. Uh, so now you have all these bigger impacts, but really the number of game wardens has not gone up. So we put that in there to show that this thin green line keeps getting thinner and thinner and thinner, uh, and that game wardens are important to get as many out there as possible. If you talk to most chiefs in most states, they will tell you, I would not have any problem. I could very easily keep double the amount of game wardens I have working for me right now in this state, busy 24-7 if they choose to be. And when you add things like this, you know, illegal cannabis cultivation from the cartels, uh, that's a whole nother challenge. I mean, in California, because cannabis regulation is the hot ticket now, and it, we've been recreationally regulated under Prop 64 since two years before I retired, and it is failing to stop black markets. It's incentivizing the cartels, which I know we're going to elaborate on. Um, but now almost a hundred game wardens out of 450 to 500 game wardens in California are dedicated just to cannabis enforcement Wow! on private land inspection teams. There is the tactical unit, the marijuana enforcement team that, that, that I co-founded and those guys are out there relentless and they're helping private lands or doing public land stuff and there's no end in sight. So when you add those challenges, you're pulling game wardens from doing all of that traditional hunting and fishing mm -hmm. stuff, water diversion problems, water pollution, uh, offshore oil spills, hunter education, you know, for the kids and helping promote the hunter education program to bring anglers and conservationists from the next generation that we definitely seem to be losing as we go more urbanized yeah. and we get less, less, you know, outdoor wear families. So it's a constant fight. And that's why I'm so passionate about telling the story now without any restrictions and being able to speak very honestly about what is going on, not only in my old state of California, but the nation of why the thin green line is important and why game wardens are important and why guys like you and me and our families and everybody in, in the outdoor sports world are critical to saving our resources for, for the sake of everybody. Right. Uh, one question here, um, as far as game wardens, uh, fighting, fighting the cartel and, and this being, uh, a, a fight that the that that lands in the game warden's uh, jurisdiction. Uh, why wouldn't the DEA be part of this? Or maybe they are. I don't know. But uh, I, I understand that you know when someone poisons a stream, that's a wildlife um, violation. Or when they kill a bear out of season, or or they're killing coyotes, or they're they're you know spraying these toxins all over a national park. That's obviously um, a wildlife violation, but. As far as like the drug cartels coming in and, and being a big part of this, uh, why why is why is it that the that it's it's falling to, towards the game wardens rather than the DEA or or any other um, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, any other organization that might be more equipped, you know, to I mean now you're now you're equipped after you've built this whole right. task force and everything, but at one point you're you're not. And, uh, and so you have to become equipped. So why is it that, uh, that it fell to the, to the game wardens? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's really kind of just, I want to call it traditional uh, areas of operationals, operational expertise. You know, what, what's your normal MOS of, uh, of an agency? And DEA, um, DEA has 
they have to wear a lot of hats because we're talking about toxically tainted cannabis on the black market from cartels. We got to remember these same cartels are importing and trafficking massive amounts of cocaine. They're cooking in dirty labs within this country and as well in Mexico, methamphetamine. And now, and I know we talked a little bit about this the last in our last conversation, but this new fentanyl threat no, so that bad. is just, since you and I talked, I mean, it's gotten exponentially worse. I think we're up to 120 to 150,000 deaths nationally, ages like 16 to 45, and even younger for some of these kids. Um, those cartels are doing all that. So DEA... Um, they're kind of like game wardens. They're, they're a very thin line, right? Those agents have so much to do, not only internally in our nation, but they're overseas working operations. So we have always been supported by DEA on the cannabis front. We've been funded by them. They fund every state. They fund counties in every state doing this cartel cannabis, public or private land, um, based on the production that these state agencies will put out. And DEA has been a great agent. I've, I was, I'm very, very close with especially the Bay Area DEA agents and Southern California agents and that, that whole infrastructure because they're very like-minded. And since we're starting to work with us 20 years ago, especially the last 10 years, they started to see that this is an environmental story that's very critical, not just a public safety, you know, drug erosion within our nation story. Um, but they don't have the guys on the ground or the women on the ground to go in and have raid teams that are just going to do cannabis in the woods uh, and really, Game Warden's just, we've, we've adapted to that. Mm -hmm. We were kind of built for it, given the job we do outdoors anyway. Right. Um, rural sheriff's teams, um, rural tactical units as opposed to urban units fit the bill perfectly. We bring a lot of urban SWAT teams in to support us when they can. Um, but all these agencies are so taxed doing all of the other public safety crimes and all of the other drugs that I just mentioned outside of mm -hmm. cannabis is the reason you don't see DEA just running marijuana teams massively in the outdoors nationwide. Mm -hmm. They just can't, they don't have the bandwidth for it. Right. They really don't. don't, but they have the funding and they have the you know infrastructure to support those local agencies like us, especially on the, on the fish and wildlife environmental front. And quite honestly, we had a, a good friend of mine is Bill Bodner and he's basically the SAC, the head shed of the Los Angeles office of the DEA. And he sees the Southwest Arizona, the Texas area, Guam, Hawaii, uh, part of Mexico. And um, Bill's the kind of guy that goes, man, I get it. This environmental stuff is, it's, it's total bullshit. You know, what you guys are doing out there is absolutely important. And I'm going to help share the message. I mean, for them to even, you know, from a, a federal agency at that level to greenlight him to talk on a, po a podcast for the first time candidly, that was a big step. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, I'm very grateful to those guys because you, that's where it's going to come from. It's going to come from federal funding and an agency like the DEA at the top of the food chain, you know, uh, right there in Washington to say, hey, this goes beyond just black market cannabis, right? Undercutting a legal market. It's so much deeper than that. Yeah. You know, it's so much deeper. And, and that's where we're at with that. And they're helping where they can. So from, from what you're... Um in, in your book, you're talking about these, these grow sites and, and the, the chemicals that they're putting uh, all over the land and spraying directly on, on the marijuana itself just to keep everything off of it. They really don't care. Uh, right. They just want to get a good crop and send it on its way. They don't really seem to care what happens Just make the money, man. Right? So yep. in your opinion, like when somebody anywhere in the country, that they're, they're in a state where marijuana is not legal, and you're buying marijuana is probably um, 
somehow coming from the cartel, I would imagine. Right. That's where most of it is coming. What Do you, you have any kind of idea of what percentage of, of the black market is cartel uh, versus, I don't know, somebody growing it in their backyard or, or you know, just some other other thing other than the cartel? Would you have any idea, you know, a ballpark percentage? Yeah, we, uh, it's hard to say a percentage, but I can, I can put it, I can kind of put some, some light on it this way and say in California as an example, and I'm going to use my old home state because California is the weed state of the world, not even just the country. You know, it's one of six Mediterranean climates on the globe. It's a great outdoor state for growing good wine grapes, right? Like Napa Valley, we're known for good wine. We're known for good weed. I mean, mm-hmm. we just are indoor and outdoor. So um, since we've regulated under Prop 64 that was supposed to undercut the black market, supposed to push the cartels out, um, we've seen that black market, and I'm going to say at least 50%, and that's a very conservative estimate of all this black market cannabis is coming from cartels and the official name for them because they're not just the mexican cartels or the asian cartels now they're gang groups that are working as contractors in the or the jalisco generation cartels as well um in the cannabis trade um transnational criminal organizations tcos and these tcos that are mexican-based but they're also asian-based too have found a glitch in, in our program and using california prop 64 as an example and said hey I can go into California, I can go to rural Siskiyou County, I can buy some property dirt cheap, I can put up a bunch of hoop houses, I can grow hundreds of millions of dollars of, of black market cannabis, I can put all kinds of poisons on it to keep the stuff off because I just want to make money, I don't care about health and human safety, mm-hmm. and there is a 1% to 3% chance I'm going to get raided by a cannabis enforcement group that's so overworked and so understaffed right now compared to the number of grows popping up because what we did in that state and we're doing it in all the other states that are regulating near where you're at, the Midwest, I'm I'm thinking about Oklahoma and different states that that we're having trouble in, Oregon, um, they watered all illegal cannabis production and distribution down to a misdemeanor. Hmm. And so if you grow seven illegal plants, you know, or seven over the limit in a, in a regulated state as a mom and pop in your backyard, really sedate, harming nobody, or you grow 7,000, you know, on your huh. private land or in the national forest, it's a misdemeanor. Wow. You're not going to go to jail. You're going to have a raid team on a warrant, raid your farm. They're going to destroy your plants. You're probably not going to be convicted if you have some inv- heinous environmental crime, human trafficking, illegal guns, which is now what we got to look for with these other allied agencies we go in with, because we're not going to get any hard hit on that misdemeanor. So these Asian cells and Mexican cartel cells are they're doing hundreds, if not thousands, of illegal grows all over the West Coast, knowing that 10 percent of them might get raided and they're going to lose their product. But they're going to make a hundred plus million dollars, and that's a conservative estimate, Tom. No exaggeration, for what doesn't get rated. And I was co-hosting with Jorge Ventura uh, and their producer Sagnik Basu, uh, documentary called Narcofornia, uh, up in Northern California for the Daily Caller. And I was embedded with them for about a week. We were working with Siskiyou County Sheriff, some of my old partners I worked with operationally. Hadn't seen them in three years, and now we're back with five years of regulation behind us, and we're all on private land. We're not even in outdoor national forest doing those grows. We're going into these rural parts below the pristine Mount Shasta, almost 14,000 feet of glacier water, which is the watershed for 
that really most remote, pristine part of California left. And I can't tell you how many tens of thousands of illegal grow cartel hoop houses we were finding. We raided four that day out of the 15,000 estimated in that county. And it was a literal train wreck. Mm. Um, the amount of plants, the illegal wells that were dug, the water diversions, the poisons in the water, uh, water trucks, you know, driving into like the city of Doris in the middle of the night and tapping their massive public uh, water supply for the whole city and for the school and everything else. And just stealing that water in the middle of the night in 20, 30, 40, 100 water trucks to get enough water to grow this illegal weed that gets put on U-Haul trucks and go straight back to where you're at and the Midwest. And we're watching these, you know, as a civilian looking covert documentary team watching these crews all day long, daylight and after dark, get it, get on, you know, highway uh, 97 up there and start that Eastern run right in Northern California to take wow. all that weed back East. And literally nothing was stopping them. And you talk to the sheriff that's doing the best he can. And he's just, his hands are tied with his little agency and some great marijuana cops that I've worked with forever. Um, they're like, yeah, no one's helping us. Governor's not helping us because we don't, we're not allowing the regulation in our county. We know it's not going to work. It's failed. We're not getting federal help. And at what point do you declare this threat to our American public and to our waterways and our wildlife, a national emergency enough to have federal intervention and say, okay, we need to handle this like a massive earthquake that just leveled a, a state or a massive wildfire campaign and not only throw money at it, but get a task force and bring in 300 officers and go hit a strike team and go grow by grow by go grow. And, you know, look at regulation changes so we can get some felonies back in this. Um, I politicked adamantly when I was lieutenant of the team and we knew regulation was coming and I was doing presentations to lobbyists, governor staff, uh, conservation groups, um, grower groups that were going to come out and be legal now, um, angler groups, you name it. And I said, guys, we know you're going to, we're going to regulate. We think if you're going to regulate, this could actually help stop these cartels. Just regulate correctly and don't lessen the heat or the acceleration of going against these outdoor criminals. And they did just the opposite. They mm -hmm. watered it down to get votes, to get it to pass. They saw big dollar signs. And, you know, between the money and the special interest, when that starts driving the bus for policy, especially on cannabis regulation, wildlife waterways, wild lands, and more, and as importantly, or more importantly, public safety are going to suffer. And that's why it's the wild west in Northern California and something we're trying to blow up to say, red alert guys, this is, this is what's going to happen in every state. Um, and it's the direction it happens in every state because everybody sees those dollar signs, Tom, and, and that's the problem. So massive percentage of cartels doing it because they can, Right. I mean, we're inviting them in because of the law structure and giving them a, a free reign with no uh, no deterrence because they have nothing to lose it except would, a couple it plants. It would seem like to me that, um, well, first of all, this is the side of the story that most people don't see that they're thinking, oh, we'll legalize legalize marijuana. It's going to be it's going to be great for everybody. It'll you know we'll, we'll, we won't have to chase down these criminals and everything you know for for a little bit of of weed, you know, we won't be putting people in jail, there'll be less people in jail, all of that. And that's a that's a fine story, but they're not hearing this side of the story, which is that, yeah, we're that's not the problem. The people that are right. buying, you know, $10 worth of weed on the street, that's not the problem. The problem is, <laughs> excuse me, poisoning your 
your entire watershed uh, trying to grow this. And it would seem like uh, that when you make it legal, that it would discourage this type, type of activity, but, or that when you make it legal and people are paying the, the proper fees and the proper taxes and getting the proper licenses to do this, that the government would be like, okay, well, we are going to make sure that we put the hammer down on illegal uh, grows. So we're protecting the people that are, are doing it legally, and we're really putting the hammer down on the people that are doing it illegally. And it, but it seems like that once it became legal, that the illegal black market has grown far more than the than the legal market, which has actually grown. Spot on. I mean, and so why why is that? I mean, why is it that the that when you legalize it, it enhances the black market? This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Well, and that's the, that's the heartbreaking part about this whole thing, man. And, you know, I, I keep in touch with my old teammates and the new guard, you know, and, and watch what's happening in cannabis enforcement very closely in California, because it's a template now for what I discuss, like we're talking about today and with every state, it's looking for prevention to make sure this doesn't happen in their state. And then looking at national regulation as an option. And what would that look like with the current administration looking at federally regulating and, and allowing regulated cannabis nationally? Um, it's just poor law structure. That's the bottom line. It's not because we don't have the people that can do the enforcement correctly. It's not because we don't have the, the heart of numerous law enforcement officers well beyond just Fish and Wildlife, my old agency, that want to see this stuff organically pure if it's going to be on a legal market, you know, that it's it's documented properly, that the cartels are not in this mix, that they're not embedded, either poisoning our people or undermining the legal market. So when you make that crime of illegal cannabis, regula anybody violating a cannabis law now or not doing it under proper regulation to make that a misdemeanor, I mean... A traffic violation is a misdemeanor. Mm. <laughs> you know, most nonviolent crimes are misdemeanors and they don't 
have jail time as a deterrent, especially with the way our jail systems are now and the, and the overcrowding and everything, you're just, there's just no deterrence to keep them from doing that. And there's no incentive for legitimate growers to stay in a legitimate market. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'll take it a step further and, um, you know, we're in post-production on the call sign trailblazer documentary right now where we interviewed several legitimate growers that had previously been black market growers, you know, way back in the day. And they saw this opportunity in California to come into the light. They always, even when they were doing it illegally, they were very environmentally conscious. They were conserving water. I mean, squeezing every drop of water they could and using as little as possible on their cannabis to make sure they used, you know, they didn't impact the watershed any more than they had to. Um, completely organic, what they call DEM, dragon, uh, dragonfly certified, which is, it, it's like, it's so stringent and the stuff has to be so organic. It even exceeds like what are agricultural fruit products and vegetables mm. we would eat. And those people that are now in the regulated market are going broke. They're being undermined by the black market and the cartels and they're done. And they're absolutely done. They're going to get out of cannabis production entirely because they're literally losing their rear ends every single year. Um, it was crazy to see that as we're interviewing these growers, it's not only the cartels undermining the black, uh, undermining them through the black market and poor law structure, meaning we're incentivizing the black market right at, you know, the, right at the governmental agency level and regulation level, but the infrastructure of the distributors that are supposed to pay these legal growers for their product that they put out on a legal dispensary market because these farmers by the law structure cannot sell directly to consumers like a farmer's market, mm -hmm. right? They have mm -hmm. to go through distributor just like a retailer, you know, yep. in sporting goods uh, to make an analogy that you and I are familiar with or our, our brands. Um, and these distributors are not paying these growers and I have one grower that her and her husband have an exemplary grow site. It's got Department of Fish and Wildlife, you know, certified, inspected signs all over it. Uh, their water conservation model was something I'd never heard of. It was, it was awesome. Um, like a, a million and a half dollar outdoor grow site up in Lake County. And she said, I've had distributors. They've got award-winning cannabis, completely certified, organically pure, winning awards. And they're, I think she said $600,000 were owed to her and her husband from these distributors, three different ones. Wow. And she hasn't been paid a dime in like two and a half, three years. And there's no backlash on these distributors through the uh, what they call the Department of Cannabis Control, the DCC in California, because they're not, they're not equipped to deal with this. Hmm. There's no accountability. So we legalized, we saw dollar signs, we made it a misdemeanor out there. We invited all the cartels, Asian and Mexican, to come into California, and now all the and many many other states. Um, and that's simply why it's not working. Mm. Is when you get, when you when you start enforcement with a poor law structure like that, you've kind of crippled, hogtied all these officers where they're walking around hopping on one leg with everything else tied behind their back. And, you know, that's kind of a brutal analogy to look at it, but that's seriously what's happening. And it's something we're, we're trying to turn around any way possible yeah. and not only California, but nationally. Well, it seems like with this, with it trending that direction that the legal growers are going out of business and, and can't make it, that there's still a market for medicinal marijuana, legal uh, dispensaries. So where are they getting their product? 
Does that well, lead to getting it, getting cartel weed into the legal dispensary somehow or another? There is some of that getting into the dispensaries, but most of the dispensaries, by and large, that we see generally have what they call seed-to-sale tracked cannabis, and it is done legally. It's registered. It's not cartel-run. The problem is that the black market has undercut the price so much that even all black market cannabis right now is down to three to $600 a pound, which three, four years ago, you're taking 2,500 to 3,000 a pound. Wow. So most of the black market cannabis that's, made, that's produced in California is going back east through kind of a vertical dis- distribution model that the Asian cartels are really getting great at, especially we noticed on the, what we were seeing in Siskiyou County and seeing this stuff go back east. Um, they're making the big money on the black market on the cartel front. The dispensary folks, they're barely breaking even. Yeah. And you're seeing more, you're going to see more and more dispensaries go under because they're going to experience the same thing that these regulated growers, right, that have this pure product on a farm, like I just mentioned mm-hmm. in Lake County. That stuff is slated to go to dispensaries. That's the good stuff going to dispensaries. But because it's so undercut on the black market, people are buying their stuff off the black market because. Even well, though the stuff is largely toxically tainted, the, you, what's that? You think dispensaries could be buying off the black market because it's so expensive? Otherwise, or is that's uh, not what you're saying, right? Just no, to no, be no, clear. no, no. There, there is, there is some of that going on. I mean, obviously, some people are going to just to stay in business and stay afloat. You're going to see some black market in dispensaries. Right. We, we've tracked it in the past. Um, it's not. We don't know the full extent of it because it's something you just can't deal with all the time with all the stuff going on on the raids we have to do on the legitimate black market Mm -hmm. illegal we know this stuff is illegal we know it's going to the black market i'm dealing with that but um the dispensaries are getting their legitimate weed from these legitimate growers through that distribution model and then and these legitimate growers aren't getting paid and then the dispensaries are getting less and less and less money for regulated Mm -hmm. toxically you know pure cannabis and then they look at their registration and their inspections and their oversight and their overhead and it's massive amounts of money and it's mm-hmm. always and it's it's all, always in the red now for unless you're a massive conglomerate right now dispensaries just aren't thriving wow. that's that's a real all. that's really strange because you would think uh i mean a lot of people say wow that's the business to get into right like i mean it seems like they're popping up all over the place and it seems like the public demand is higher than ever and it, is. it seems like that the dispensaries would be the, the business to, to get into. What, just, just out of curiosity, who, what, what organization um, uh, determines, like, like looks at the dispensaries and makes sure that they're not getting, you know, black market product, that they're, that they're going from seed to sale, they know exactly what they're getting who, who is that? Is that the DEA or, or who does that? Yeah, it, it's, it's actually a, a group of people and it's under the department, um, that Department of Cannabis Control is an example. DCC in California is a group that Department of Fish and Wildlife's Cannabis Enforcement Program team members, my old partners are now working with, the Water Board is working with it. They have inspection agents that are part of DCC that may not even be law enforcement necessarily Mm -hmm. from an agency. And they're responsible for that. And that literally this last year, right before uh, the new year started to really ramp up. Um, And we started to see kind of a political shift of agencies like ours that are working all over the state from a law enforcement standpoint, integrate more with DCC, water board with DCC, um, 
federal agencies, Forest Service, possibly if they had to, because the stuff's on federal land that we're doing state and federal enforcement on, um, any of the stuff that's still in the outdoors, we're going to deal with with that group as well if it's illegal cannabis and making it into a black market. So groups like that are going to end up being formed. Uh, and they're not a law enforcement entity. They're a regulatory agency, right? Kind of like the EPA. Right. Right. You know, it's going to rely on but those, your cops those, from your like, agencies. All like, of the uh, all of the dispensaries, no matter what legal state you're in, heavily uh, regulated by those people. You yes. would say. I mean, that's safe to say yep. that they're heavily regulated. So here's another question before we move on to the fentanyl thing that I want to talk about. So I went to yeah. Alaska this summer. We were fishing up there on the Kenai. I, on the I Kenai. followed your trip, man. So awesome. Yeah, we I texted mean, a little bit of that. That was amazing. Yeah. I love I love Alaska. It's a it's a it's an incredible state, and you could just you could just really it's one of those places where you go there and you're like this is a lifetime thing. You know, three weeks is not enough. A month is not enough. You know, the entire summer is not enough. It's a huge state. But one of the things that I noticed immediately is is weeds legal in in Alaska, and there are yep. just you know you go through these tiny little towns, and there'll be I don't know a couple of fishing outfitters, and the river's right there, and there'll be four four dispensaries, four, yep. for a town of of two hundred and fifty people, and there's four, and it's not like this is a major tourist area, and then you go a little further and you go through another one, and there's six dispensaries in this other little place. I mean, there yeah. can't be more than 500 people that are living there. And I just started thinking, this is, this is way too many. I mean, it's like when you go see the mattress stores everywhere. Right. And you're like, right. what yeah. is going on here? There's a mattress firm here. There's another mattress store here. There's a mattress store here. These are 10-year purchases at best. How do these stores stay open? And I still, that's still a big mystery to me, how the how the mattress places stay open. But when, when I go up to Alaska and I'm looking at this and it's like, okay, well, I mean, cannabis is at an all time high, but is it enough for five of these places to stay open here? Like, it just seems, it just seems an, a, a, like it's skewed way to way too many. And maybe they'll go out of business. I don't know. Maybe they won't. But it, but when you see something like that and you just see one after another in a state that's legal is a perfectly legal business but right. it just seems like an inordinate amount of businesses that they couldn't possibly be, be thriving. What is going on there? Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Yeah, you know, I, I'm i baffled by the same thing, man, because in the home state of Montana, we have regulated cannabis in Montana, and I'm seeing dispensaries popping up in the Flathead Valley. Right, Montana's another making state. Making airport runs, you know, like, like you're saying, exponentially. And... What's interesting is in the couple dispensaries that are in my little hometown right there in Lincoln County, they're not thriving from what I'm seeing. They're not thriving. You know, they're uh, weird hours. You're seeing some you're, you're seeing some very interesting things. And I'm seeing that uh, in other states as well and all throughout California. And I know California for sure, working with a lot of those dispensary people doing it by the numbers, they're going out of business. Mm. 
because the black market bottom line is cutting them out and they can maybe go a year, they can go two years, they'll be able to move product. But when you look at the permits required, the mm -hmm. business license, the inspections, mm -hmm. uh, the, the inspection seed to sale structure, it's pretty regulated, man. It's pretty locked up mm -hmm. and it's very solid. And, but it takes a lot of money to get into the trade because you got to buy into all that, you mm -hmm. know, and you got to have all those permits. And I think in California, the last I heard it was eight to 10 permits from different agencies, Fish and Wildlife being one of them, mild agency, to do an outdoor grow, to get your green light before you can go ahead and produce legal cannabis that's yeah. going to go to a distributor. And you're telling me that, that five different people in this little town have gone through all of that yeah. to set up shop right next to one another? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, it just yeah. doesn't. I mean, yeah. like, and, you and, see and, that and there's, there's, there's two fly shops in the town, right? And they're barely making it, even though it's a world-class destination. But they're barely making it because it's a world-class destination for 100 days, right? But there's barely enough business for two people, two fly shops. But there's five weed shops or six weed shops or seven weed shops. It's like, wow, that is just... It's just, it just is baffling. Yeah, to me. It, you know, it baffles me. And I just kind of sit back and I watch to see if you, if you were to go to Alaska next year, would all five of those shops be in that little town of 500? Or if you were there to go a sec the year after that, would it be a different dispensary in place of the old dispensary because someone wanted to try? Right. Um, and I can't say for sure, but I can only work off of California examples because we've been at it the longest with the biggest weed mm -hmm. state. And so many people that started out they're gone now. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm going to say maybe 10% of all of these people that were going to regulate in Humboldt County at first that pulled out of it, they saw the permit fees, they saw the overhead, and they weren't stupid. You know, they mm -hmm. know how the black market works because a lot of them came from the black market. Right. And they saw that misdemeanor clause for outdoor or private land illegal growing, and they went, hmm, I'm making more money like we, this. Yeah, I don't have I can, to deal well, with all this regulation. Exactly. If I, get brother, caught, it's I don't a have misdemeanor. to deal with the regulations. And once I register to certify to get my permits, I'm now on the radar of an agency that knows I'm a grower. Right. Right. So now they're going to know where my place is. I'm in, I'm in a, I'm not in a cash business under the table, pay no taxes anymore. Sometimes to the tune of millions of dollars of cash, I'm just living off of under, under the, you know, in the underworld. Now they're going, Hey man, I got to file taxes. I'm on the radar. Uh, you know, I'm getting a 1099, you know, a W2 or yeah. whatever the case may There's be. There's been some really good movies, uh, that I've I've come across too. I think that Murder Mountain, that which is all about Humboldt. Murder Mountain was crazy. Humboldt it was done County, really well. Exactly yeah. where you're talking about. And I think in that movie they go and visit some people that are trying to go legal, and they go go through all the different things that you're you're saying. It's like, look, man, they're making it really hard, really, really yeah, hard. Yeah, they are. And, and and again, like I said, it's it's kind of like when you um you put the cart in front of the horse, man. And if, if we had just regulated a different way, you'd see these dispensaries really doing well. They'd probably, they'd be able to make enough money that they could thrive and be a legitimate business. And I've always said, doesn't matter where you sit on the pro-weed, anti-weed spectrum, right. conservative, liberal, whatever, 45 to 50 plus Americans are cannabis consumers any given day. And that grows and ebbs and flows that they're going to get their cannabis legally or illegally it's not going to stop the consumption. So why aren't we making sure that those folks are not getting poison products, that they're not, you know, um, being complicit in an incentivized black market and supporting a black market that they don't even want to support? I mean, 
I've talked to so many different cannabis growers. I've talked to, you know, uh, ex-guerrilla growers that were out there doing trespass grows on forest land and, you know, like literally competing with the cartels. Um, and those guys said, hey, look, man, um, we never want to hurt anybody. We just wanted to make money. We like the weed trade. Um, and now it's gotten really crazy and the cartels are really dangerous and they're kind of running the forest. They're running the private lands now and there's no incentive and there's no money in it anymore. So the people that should be growing this stuff for a healthy market are pulling out. Mm. And all of the people that don't give a rat's ass about you, me, the health of our kids, the safety of our public, and they're not even, you know, legally here are now running the show to, and I'm not talking a, a million dollar industry, I'm talking a billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. The black market weed trade right now is up in the 20 plus billion dollar range. We're getting estimates of how much money is undercut by cartel groups largely. So when we look at all of that, there's gotta be a change. And either national regulation, like the, like the wine and the tobacco industry, you know, that's been brought up a lot and that would realistically have an impact. Um, and just regulating properly. Don't make illegal growing indoor or outdoor a misdemeanor. Yeah. You know, because we know there's associated environmental crimes and anybody that's going to do it illegally usually isn't conserving water. They're not, you know, protecting the creeks next to their neighbor. They're usually taking the water they need because cannabis is like any other agricultural product. It takes a lot of water even when you conserve. And when you're making a lot of weed and a lot of money, you're, you're using a lot of water. Right. You know, to the tune, an average is approximately five gallons per plant per day wow. and in some and that's a lot that's a lot of water per day yeah, especially in a for state some of these strains like that California. take seven months to yeah right i mean you know it's already a it's already a a, a state that is in dire need yeah. of water in certain places and and then oh, wow that's that's tough um so let's talk about um you were talking about the health of of us and the kids and everybody that that might might you know be be getting marijuana on the black market or, or, or on the legal market, I guess. But when, it's, when they use all these chemicals uh, on the plants that are, that are chemicals that you say a tablespoon or two tablespoons could kill an entire uh, creek, and that's what they're spraying on this plant, how, would, how do people know like, what they're getting? Do they know? That's Is the there problem. any way they, uh, to know? Yeah, that's, that's the problem. They're not going to know because... The carbofuran, when it goes on the plant, they spray it like in an irrigation sprayer, and it'll go on and look kind of like a white mist, like, uh, you know, like misty white spray paint or like bird droppings or like liquid paper. But then after about 24 to 48 hours, it'll dry and it becomes invisible. So it's on the plants, but you can't see it. And that sheen is only visible on the plants the first couple of days it's applied. And that's how, like if we walk into a grow and we see these sheeny white plants, even with our masks and our nitrile gloves, it's too toxic to even touch. Wow. Even with uh, protection equipment, it's too toxic to eradicate because it's going to contaminate nets. It's going to contaminate us. We could possibly breathe this stuff in and have respiratory failure, blindness, you know, all the nerve agent and toxins that are in this insecticide. Um, they're pretty, they're pretty immediate, man. And it's, it's acute. So that being said, people don't know. You don't know. Unless they really know they they got dispensary stuff that's been you know DEM certified and it's been tracked seed to sale that they got a pure product that doesn't have and not only the banned or uh, inorganics or the banned pesticides like the the carbofuran we're talking about and you know you can't get that in this country it's a felony to use or possess now because EPA determined 20 years ago this stuff is so toxic 
Um, but it is still available in Tijuana. It is available in third world countries. So the cartels import it to continue to use it under their business model. But even other uh, pesticides that uh, a lot of dispensaries are saying, oh, yeah, we're completely organic. We don't use any pesticides or byproducts on the weed. That's total BS. I talk to black market growers all the time. I've got people that are going to be disguised in the documentary talking about this. They're like, you have no idea how much garbage is going on these plants. And even if it's not carbofuran from south of the border, stuff that you would never want to ingest on any level that is, you know, a commercially available pesticide or insecticide. And it's a lot. It's a whole lot because there's so much of it. Again, the black market is really driving supply right now. So there's, there's no telling what you're getting from California weed or from these other states where you're at in Tennessee or what's happening in the Midwest. So people just have to be extremely careful. And if they're working with the dispensary, they got to know it's a regulated dispensary, that seed to sales being tracked, that the stuff's being tested, it's being looked at, and just being careful. Wow. And then now there's a whole other thing with fentanyl. And we discussed oh, yeah. this a little bit on the last one, but, but fentanyl, um, I, I, I know someone that just died of fentanyl, Six, uh, 18-year-old boy that uh, got it in some kind of pill. And uh, accidental, one pill. That's it. Done. Yep. And uh, but but it is getting in marijuana as well, and in, yes. in both synthetic marijuana and real marijuana, in all yeah. the different. I don't know. I don't know where you can get fentanyl. But what? I mean, for somebody that doesn't know, we have a lot of parents that listen to this podcast. We have a lot of dads and people. For somebody that doesn't know about fentanyl, what is it, and why are we having this massive? Um, outbreak of fentanyl deaths, and generally they're accidental fentanyl deaths. From what I'm from what I'm gathering, and I don't know anything yeah. about it because I'm a parent and I'm I'm concerned about this, and I'm concerned that you know my kids might get something. You know, you're yeah. Who knows what it is, and and it only takes a tiny amount. So what is what what is going on with the fentanyl, especially as it pertains to 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 your specialty marijuana? Um, and how would you protect yourself from that? Well, it, it is by far, I, I consider it, you know, the, the new national evil. Um, I think it's one of the most sinister and, and heinous things the cartels have kind of found the market for. Um, and yeah, fentanyl is basically a synthetic opioid that is, what, 40 or 100 times stronger than pure heroin as an opiate. Wow. And, it's, and this fentanyl, it's made cheap. And, you know, one kilo of fentanyl obviously is mixed to cut heroin. It's put in synthetic marijuana, like you said. Um, And what's so sinister about this thing is there's such a massive, massive black market financially for the cartels that they're they're leaning and putting a lot of emphasis on the fentanyl right now. Like we have heard on the black market intel circuits that the, the drug cartels out of Mexico, for instance, typically doing all the outdoor national forest, you know, tainted cannabis, black markets for weed, they have totally, totally slowed down on that. Mm. Now, the private land stuff and the hoop houses that I just talked about in Siskiyou County, they're still doing that because that is still a profitable market for them. Because even with the black market being undercut and the, and the market being saturated, they're still making an adequate amount of money to continue that activity. But it's, it is fractions compared to the money they're making off dirty lab fentanyl. 
um, when that stuff is cut down, and these pills, Tom, is you've probably seen, these are made in dirty labs in Mexico. Uh, I'm hearing they're made in dirty labs now by the cartels in America, and they are made to look like a prescription opioid, like an Oxycontin or any prescribed you know, painkiller for a surgery recovery, whatever, uh, labeled in prescription bottles. And the things that's just absolutely disgusting is the new fentanyl pills are colored like candy, and they're made to look like the color of Skittles, where you got this rainbow of colors of these little pills, and kids are giving these to their friends, or they're getting them from illegitimate sources, and they're passing them around at parties. Or, you know, you mentioned having a youngster that you know that died from fentanyl, and I have a good friend whose daughter died right here in the affluent uh, Bay Area uh, about three months ago. And this young lady was valedictorian. She was accepted to some tier one colleges. She was a volleyball athlete. She was a music. She was a beautiful young human being, you know, a, epitome of the all-American girl. Mm -hmm. And she had a really, uh, it was a knee injury from um, volleyball injury. And she got one of these pills from a friend who knows where it came from and said, hey, you know, it's, this is a painkiller. It'll help you in recovery. She took that pill. She went in to do her homework in her room that night after being with her friends that day. And then she didn't wake up to go to school. That's crazy. And I mean, that's how innocent this stuff looks on the market, but how deadly. And you mentioned, you know, yeah, you're a father, you know, and I have nieces and nephews and all kinds of other kids that, that I'm responsible for as well. And it's, it's, it's horrifying to know that these pills, they almost seem because of the candy look and because so many young people are using them and because they look like they're coming from a legitimate doctor's prescription bottle, they seem very safe. Yeah. And yet, you know, every third pill in these bottles, as an example, you're not, you're going to fall asleep and you're done. You're just going to have that, that, that toxic shutdown and you're so done. Why, why is that? Like, that's, that's a big mystery to me. Like you say, every third pill or, or wherever these people are getting these pills from, obviously somebody else has taken them and they seem fine. And then they give, somebody one of these pills and it kills them so why why is it so inconsistent do you think with with so the strength of these or the amount of fentanyl in in some of the pills versus others yeah it, it's basically dirty labs i mean when you look at pharmaceutical level opioids and synthetic fentanyl that's pretty structured, right? You don't hear of somebody getting a prescription after surgery out of a legitimate pharmacy and having a fentanyl overdose right. while they're recovering from like a hip replacement, right? right? But these dirty labs are so inconsistent and they're doing it so ad hoc. They have their, I mean, they have the chemists and they have their, uh, they have their system kind of down pretty solid. But what you end up starting to find is the doses aren't always perfect, right? And fentanyl is so powerful as you and I have discussed before that just that that nano amount that goes over what one pill should have is instantly fatal. And that's why every every pill in one bottle isn't necessarily going to be fatal, we're finding out, but a good percentage or some of those pills in that bottle randomly are going to be a death sentence. Wow. And if kids are passing these around because they got them from whatever source, maybe their parents even got them, you know, on a, on a dirty market. Who knows? But the bottom line is whatever's in that bottle, unless you know the origin of it and you didn't, and you didn't fill a prescription yourself from a legitimate pharmacy, it could be a death sentence. And that is not an exaggeration. Um, and the education is just starting to backlash now where we're seeing this on Instagram feeds. We're seeing uh, Senator Dan Crenshaw is doing a lot on it. 
down on the southern, you know, the Texas border with Mexico, we're starting to see the fentanyl crisis come up. Um, I know I'm, you know, thumping that message and you're bringing it up and I'm, I'm grateful for you doing that because we need to. That's definitely going to contribute to a lot more American deaths. Um, it's going to continue to grow because this stuff looks so so innocent and safe, the candy version. And the thing we got to remember is don't just think about the fentanyl crisis suddenly being the hot button item. What we just talked about, all this black market cannabis that's been going on for 25 years in America from these cartels, same guys, Tom, mm. same group. Think of it as you and me have our brands and, uh, you know, you have a television program for conservation. You're an angler. Maybe you, you, you support a particular brand for fishing rod. For me, it's blades, firearms, whatever, uh, you know, all that. We have, we have so many things we're doing for conservation on the other side, on the dark side, these cartels have so many things in their business model that make them a ton of money and erode us from within. And it's black market cannabis with the taintedness, right? It's fentanyl. It's methamphetamine, human trafficking. Mm. The money in human trafficking right now is off the hook. The child sex trafficking, these are all the same groups. So we're fighting at the environmental fight, but we're actually impacting and hopefully putting a dent on people that are, build, are making fentanyl and yeah. killing our kids, are making methamphetamine. And we need to look at this as not one crisis, but one common enemy contributing to all of the problems and handle it as a national emergency. And basically what Senator Dan Crenshaw said, and I love this, he said, we need to declare a war domestically on the cartel threat to our country, to our children, to our citizens, to our wildlife, to our environment and everything, and really look inward. And I know under the current administration, that's not happening. And I'll stay out of the political you know, realm right now as much as I can. But whatever we do in the future, that has to be a, a number one priority or we are going to lose from the inside out. Mm -hmm. It's just going to happen. More people are going to die. The black market's going to run rampant. Um, but the awareness that people are taking and the backlash on both sides of the political spectrum is encouraging to me because I think people are starting to wake up and they're waking up through podcasts like this the documentaries we're putting out. Uh, Maria Van Zeller is doing an amazing job with her trafficked uh, series, three seasons deep on Nat Geo and Hulu. Uh, she was just on Joe Rogan again. They were talking about Hidden War and myself, and I gave her a big kudos for that. And she did an episode on fentanyl. She did an episode on black market weed. She does human trafficking. That, that, show's, called, from, that, that show's called Trafficked? Uh, and it's it's on called Netflix? Trafficked. Yeah, Trafficked. It, it's a national a Nat Geo show originally, but it's uh, being streamed on Hulu right oh, now. Hulu, okay. All three of her seasons, and uh, yeah, we just uh, just sent her uh, a new new Hidden War second edition. She wanted one of those um, after hearing about what we were doing, and that that's what we're going to need to put out there. Uh, we're going to need to really make that a priority nationally, man, and and take it back from internally. And I think we're starting to, and it's encouraging right now. Wow, wow, incredible information, man. Um, I would highly encourage people to uh, to read both of your books, Hidden War and, and this Hidden War Second Edition. Um, it's right here. We're, we're, well, uh, I'm honored you got your copy. I'm holding the copy. Yeah, and look, I one got thing it. I will point he, out, he, brother, he wrote, is... He, uh, he, um, he signed it for me, which is super cool. Um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And I've enjoyed both books. Uh, it's, it's really eye-opening. I mean, incredibly eye-opening to... Uh, to, to see this because this is the side of the story that most people are not hearing. Like it's one thing to think about, Oh, well, and, it, and it's funny. Like, well, it's not funny, but a lot of the people that, you know, are, are advocates for, for weed or, are, are, you know, um, 
kind of hippie kind of people that you know are friendly to animals and and are um, you know so concerned about organic produce going into their body and yet this might be what they're getting they might be supporting this uh, complete um, disregard for wildlife for water for fish for uh, the pesticides and everything else that that's on this product and and you know it seems it just seems so nice and and it's it's such a a, a an image that has been painted upon um, of just this peace and love and and all of this but this is the other side of it that is absolutely not that at all it's exactly the the opposite of uh, of dirty and toxic and damaging to to the environment and to wildlife and and if people had any idea that that could possibly be what they're supporting or could possibly be what's happening i don't think that they would ha be so sympathetic uh, yeah to to just you know what whatever i mean and and i think it's interesting where you stand on this is like you never make a stand on whether you're for it or against it or or what and i'm not i'm not either it's like that's not the point here of of right. discussing Thank this you. it's not about whether you're for it or against it it's here and your kids are going to be it will it will be uh, around your kids it will be around you and yeah. you know how do you make a a choice how do you make a decision how do you or or even just to understand what it is that you could possibly be getting and you know and and now uh you know when we're talking about fentanyl i've heard that that uh people are getting fentanyl in weed is that is that yeah possible is that the case i don't know i mean how do they do that yeah. and how would you know is there a test you you yeah and and are, are we even looking for that but you know it, it's a lot of dark issues that we're talking about here that that affect all of us you know in this great country um and for you and me it's really near and dear because of our love for wildlife and waterways and conservation but ultimately it comes down to the most important thing is keeping our public safe and keeping our kids safe mm -hmm. um and what's so the positive i've seen in this whole journey that's really encouraging to me is um, and we talk about this hidden more and I talk about it in the second edition, especially of what have we learned from COVID lockdowns and, you know, flooded borders. I've seen a lot of unity come out of all this, you know, train wreck that we've experienced from both the grower side and the conservative side, the liberal side. Everybody is in agreement that I talk to. And you're right. You said it best, brother. This isn't about being for or against cannabis. It's really not even a... a, a Cannabis is just like a catalyst. You know, it's just one product of many products that these guys are using to destroy us from within. And, and that's all it is. And we have so many, we're all on the same wavelength. We all agree, regardless of where we sit politically, and we all unify on, we want our country safe. We want our kids safe. We want waterways to enjoy. We want to see wildlife. We want to see fish. Um, and we don't want this, we don't want to be looking over our shoulder on any, for any reason in the woods or at home or at parties or whatever. So this is something that's an American issue. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter where you sit politically. And I can't say how cool it's been to be embraced by the legitimate cannabis industry. And, and they see us as their advocates, as their warriors. Um, and then our conservationists, same way, you know, which is really our bread and butter collectively, you and I. Uh, and I think there's never been a more important time for this. 
uh, before it gets worse. Because like I talk about in the second edition, especially, a lot happened since book one was published in 2019. The world shut down shortly after that. And, and the administration changed and the cartel availability and influx into this country pretty much got, it got simple. You know, there wasn't even a road bump to get into this country and wreak havoc. And now we're, now we're talking about in the updates, how bad it's gotten, but how we can correct it. And, uh, I thank you. I just thank you for bringing it up and talking with me about it. Yeah, man. Well, I love it. I love it. that Pretty much anything I, I can get behind is, uh, when there's a solution attached to it, you know, and, uh, and that's, that's very interesting. So, um, awesome, man. This was, uh, this was fantastic. And, uh, then I also have to give you a little plug because after the last one, you were nice enough to, uh, to send me one of your knives, uh, oh, which is one of the trailblazers, man, yeah. dude, that is the best knife I've ever had. And I know that's how you, you planned it. Uh, you said it was always the knife. It was the knife that, that you built the knife that you always wanted to carry. And that thing has gone with me everywhere, including all my elk hunts. I put it wow. right in my, I put it right in my bino case and I have it with me everywhere. Um, but it's, it's, it's really a great knife. So that is a, a V knife, a V knives. Yeah, this is, uh, first of all, that? I got to say, Tom, I, I really appreciate you carrying it. I'm glad it's working for you. I figured in our world, you'd like it, but that's, that's a real honor, man, that yeah. you're making it your Well, how does somebody find it? Because uh, I, I know I posted it when I first got it, and a couple of people hit me up right away, and they were looking for it. But uh, tell, tell us about that. How do you, how do you find that knife? Yeah, it's um, it's the folding blade. I got OD green handle. We got serrated, non-serrated, as you know. Um, and it's it's V knives, V N I V E S, and uh, V knives company that I'm I'm merged with. Mike Bellacamp's CEO and founder, my partner, and we have a line of fixed blades coming out. We have a whole line of thin green line trailblazer signature things. But the folder is our best seller. We can't keep them in stock. We're we're uh, we're uh, almost out of a second run of stock right now, so grab oh. them. <laughs> yeah, because we're well, going to a, a third run. So, the other thing really we're doing is, and we're doing thin blue line. Oh yeah, for our cops, and those are going to land any day. And I have back orders for those, and the thin red line for firefighters. But it's the same blade, like you're like you're used to using. So, um, if you you can get them off the website, if you want to get them with a signed copy of a book, and a personalized blade box and a kit, I do discount. And I do personalized packages. Just hit me up through my website or hit me up through a direct message on Instagram, John Norris, J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S, or through the website uh, email, which is trailblazer413 at Yahoo, um, while they're here. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad you're carrying it, man. Yeah, it's well, I well. like it so much that, uh, I, and, I, and we talked about this, but this is completely unsolicited. Um, my son's <laughs> getting married, and he was like, I, I, need a, I need a good gift to give all my groomsmen, and we decided on your knife, so... Uh, we're, right. we're going to do, we're going to do that. And it's going to be really, really cool. I mean, it's going to be the kind of thing, I mean, when you give a groomsman's gift, it's the kind of thing that you want someone to carry with special. them for yeah. their entire life. You know, like the, we want you yeah. to remember this, this, uh, for your entire life. And so it has to be a product that's of, of the quality that you can, that you can keep it for your entire life. And there really aren't, I mean, outside of, you know, firearms or, or something like that, there really aren't that many things that you can keep yeah. for your entire life. You're just going to wear them out, but I don't think you're going to wear this out. It's incredible. But John, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. It certainly won't be the last time. Uh, I, I really enjoy talking with you. We didn't even get to your, uh, your uh, endurance uh, events. You're legit. Um, and I want you to go and check out my new friend, Greg McHale, when you're going at that SCI 
uh, convention. He's also super legit, and uh, you'll be impressed with with him. But uh, what what was it that you just did? You did uh, uh, was it Ironman? Yeah, I did two uh, long course Ironmans triathlons. One in nice. Zurich, Switzerland, and one close to home in Coeur d'Alene. Um, and the, the last big endurance event I did, and it was the last time I could do it because I, it's not real good for me to be in Mexico anymore, but um, the year we started the pilot program and went operational July of 2013, I sold, in, in June of that year, I soloed the Baja 500 wow. on an ATV nice. and was the first to solo the Baja 500 successfully and make the finish line by the deadline um, as a solo rider without relay riders. Um, and that was just a personal thing because I love to race. I've been in that Baja realm for a lot of years. We've had an Ironman racing team down there since 06. But um, there's a there's an orphanage down there, Tom, that we started supporting when we started racing in 06, El Oasis. And whenever we go and do an Ironman event like that, people flood support. So that race was for our children. And uh, they got soccer uniforms. They oh, got cool. a farm started. They got another building built. They got uh, the tuition for their uh, offsite uh, school they go to every day. <clears throat> and that's really what it was about. And so that that was my, uh, you know, I think a very outside of the box thing from the typical athletics you and I do. Yeah. Uh, well, it's always good when you can when you can raise money or, or do something, you know. I mean, it, it just adds a little extra element. And then you're definitely not going to quit. <laughs> Yeah. And then, then I got a bunch of kids, you know, relying on me. Yeah. So, and, and I, I, we, we support that on the website too, but yeah, we, we do a, had a lot of, uh, quite a few endurance uh, challenges and they've been really fun and they've always been about outdoor exposure. You know, mm-hmm. I'm one of these guys that I don't really do gyms. Okay. Um, I'm either doing long lap swims if I'm in a pool here in California or I'm trail running, you know, in the back country and doing calisthenics on a trail somewhere, or I'm running a machine, you know, it's just, yeah the fresh air is so inspiring for me. If I have to get in a hotel gym, I will, I'll kind of grind through it. But you know, and I see your posts, man, where you're out doing, I just go to the relays, like a little drill camp with your family. And you guys are on the edge of a a nice river. You're on the edge of a waterway, you know, doing calisthenics and like, that's the way to work out. I I don't do the gyms, man. I I mean, occasionally a CrossFit gym, I like to go and visit those and usually they have the big garage doors open or whatever. And that's, that's nice. But typically it's entirely outside. And if I go to a hotel, it's straight to the parking lot and to the stairway. Yeah. You know, yeah, I just got to feel you. I, I got to be outside. But anyway, all right, we'll do this again, man. And I really appreciate it. And uh, you go find his, his, uh, his book, Hidden War, second edition. And you can get that anywhere books are sold. Is that correct? Or Yeah, uh, we're doing it through Amazon. Okay. And we're doing personalized copies through me. So it just, we sold out of the, we, we sold out of them a week ago and they were unavailable on Amazon and my publisher gun digest caribou recoil did a second printing of the second edition rapidly. And they just landed in Amazon again, like two days ago. So you can buy it on Amazon and you can buy it from me directly. And the audible is up as well. Oh, good. Audible. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, and we'll be back next week with another awesome guest, just like John. All right. See you. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. Four in the morning, Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.